Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, we will be presenting Lecture 4 from my institute class from 30 years ago in 1989. In this lecture, I discuss Joseph Smith's first vision accounts in detail. In fact, the entire lecture is given over to this one subject. At the beginning, I say I'm going to be covering the first vision plus a different subject, but it ends up being that the first vision accounts take up the entire class time and I have to postpone the second subject until the next lecture. That next subject, by the way, is going to be Joseph Smith's involvement with magic and treasure digging. So that will be of interest too. I certainly am not shying away from the difficult issues related to Mormonism in these lectures. So return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. Radio Free Mormon rides again. Here's Lecture 4 on Defending the Faith. I hope you enjoy it. I'd like to welcome you out to class today. What we're going to be talking about today is, in general, Joseph Smith. We'll be talking about him next week, too. Today, we're going to address two aspects of Joseph Smith's history of his life that have come under um, attack by critics of the church. And we're just going to be covering two in the entire class period today because I want to be able to have time to go somewhat into depth in both of them. Now, the first one thing we're going to talk about is the first vision, and Joseph Smith's accounts of the first vision. And the second thing we're going to talk about is Joseph Smith's dealings with magic and the occult and all this kind of folk magic, white magic, salamander magic, what have you, uh, that he was allegedly involved with during his uh, early adulthood and childhood. At any rate, let's get to the first vision. Uh, How many know... How many accounts of the first vision Joseph Smith wrote? Larry. Four. Yes, why don't you tell us what years they were written in while you're at it? Uh, there was 1832. Right. There's 1838, which is the canonized version. Mm-hmm. There's 1842. Oh, yeah. And I missed one. Right? Yes. The Wentworth letter. What was that? That's 42. That's 42. 1835 was another unpublished version. Oh, sorry. That's all right. I think that's great. You don't have nothing in front of you. Uh, 1832, 1835, 1838, and 1842. Now, Joseph Smith, of course, received the first vision in 1820. And so we have a number of years, 12 actually, between the time he received the first vision and the time we have the first account being dictated to a scribe in 1832. Often the question is asked, why did Joseph Smith wait so long to record the first vision? And often it's uh, alleged that he really didn't receive a first vision. He just sort of made it up a long time after the fact and then wrote about it and said that it happened in 1820. Of course, there's no evidence of that, but uh, it's as good a criticism of the church as any, I suppose. Let me give you an example of this type of criticism from the Mormon illusion. And note how this individual tries to make the time between the receipt of the first vision and the time of the recording of it as long as possible. He'll even try and deceive you in order to make it seem as long as possible. This is something that won't deceive you, but it would deceive someone who wasn't a member of the church. Uh, Reading from page 24, The Mormon Illusion by Floyd C. McElveen. He talks, he gives basically the official account of the first vision in summary. And then he says, Strangely enough, there is no mention of this vision in the early Mormon church records, and the improvement era admits 
Quote, Joseph Smith's official account of the first vision and the visits of the angel Moroni was first published in the Times and Seasons in 1842. This is 22 years after the event is supposed to have occurred. Yet the first vision is supposed to be the foundation of the Mormon Church, which began in 1830. Why didn't Joseph Smith give an official account of the first vision before 1842? This chapter, along with the rest of this book, especially this chapter, is very poorly written, and it's also very confusing. So my job is going to try and make it as unconfusing as possible while explaining answers and reasons behind the accusations. So he's giving me a doubly difficult task here. First, he tries to make it as long as possible by going to the 1842 version. You notice that immediately, so we can say it's been 22 years. But notice what he does to do it. Did you notice something strange about that? He quotes the improvement era saying that the official account was first published in 1842. What's wrong with that? Larry? The official account was published in 1838. That's right. What was in 1842? The Wentworth letter. The Wentworth letter. And yet he's quoting the improvement era. And now if I tell you that there's some ellipses in this quotation from the improvement era, omitted material, perhaps you can guess what was probably there in the first place. This is the quote. Joseph Smith's official account of his first vision in the visit to the angel Moroni was dot, 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 first published in the Times and Seasons in 1842. The dot, dot, dot is talking about 1838, and then goes on to talk about the Wentworth letter being published in 1842. That's sly. Oh, it's very sly, isn't it? And it's only so that he can just get the a absolute maximum amount. Now, he could have gone with 1838 and had it 18 years after the first vision, but he wants to get them to squeeze every bit out of it and get an extra four years. So you can say that this 22 years after the event is supposed to have occurred. Uh, and, of course, he never once mentions the fact that there was an 1832 account, which would have limited it to... Uh, oh, he refers to it, of course, but he never gets the year, because that would, of course, uh, undo his 22-year uh, time span there. Let me just say this briefly. One of the main reasons that Joseph Smith had so much trouble getting this thing written down and published, as I think we know, is because of the persecution that was going on, uh, being driven from place to place, hounded, <coughs> and uh, not having much time to attend to this history. Something that really gets under my skin, personally. Most anti-Mormon things don't get under my skin, but this one does. And that is that you've got anti-Mormons persecuting Joseph Smith and his followers, making it all but impossible for him to ever write his history down. And then you've got people of the same ilk today turning right around and saying, well, why didn't Joseph Smith write it down sooner? Obviously, it's a fake. That gets under my skin. Um, let's go through just a number of reasons uh, why Joseph Smith to begin. First off, maybe he did write an earlier account, but it simply wasn't preserved. Okay? That always has to be taken into uh, account. Uh, another possible uh, answer, Joseph Smith uh, reports, as you recall, having told the minister about his experience. And that's in the Pearl of Great Christ, of course. And you recall what the response of the minister was to that report. It wasn't at all good. And I can understand being a young person, sensitive of nature, which I used to be, both of, and which Joseph Smith certainly apparently was, being completely abashed by that, and I wouldn't want to share it with anyone outside of my own family either. So I can understand his wanting to keep it to himself. Uh, another response is that uh, many living, many people, not just in the church, who lived in the early 19th century in, in America, did not publish autobiographies or histories until many years after the events that shaped their lives had transpired. And that's just true for all people. That's certainly even true today. You know? Uh, 
The possibility that Joseph Smith kept a diary in 1820 seems remote. So it really seems that these people are looking for something that, quite logically, you shouldn't expect to find. Uh, another response, this is number four. When was Joseph Smith, and I'm asking you this because this is trivia time, when was Joseph Smith commanded to keep a history of the church? When did that command come from God? You can give me the date and the year and the section and the, uh, the, the whole thing. 1830. Right. 1820, Dr. Covenant. Very close. You got just about everything. April 6, 1830, the organization of the church. I would have thought section 22. It's actually section 21, which is also given on the same day. And verse 1, where it says that the record is to be kept. That's when Joseph Smith got that first revelation, that first commandment to keep the history. And when do we see the first attempt that we have any record of, anyway, of his trying to put that down in a record form, in an official form? 1832, two years later. So I don't see that as being too great a span. Um, let me read a quote from church historian Dean Jesse, which summarizes a number of these things. Uh, this is a quote here, and I'm reading from To Be Learned Is Good If... Dot, dot, dot. Even this one has ellipses, but we know what they stand for. And that's a book uh, put out by the church here. Uh, page 33. Considering the youth of the prophet, the frontier conditions in which he lived, his lack of academic training, the absence of any formal directive to motivate him to write, which we just read about him in 1830, and the antagonistic reception he received upon first relating the experience, it is not strange that he failed to preserve an account of his first vision during the decade between 1820 and 1830. However, once directed by an 1830 revelation to keep a history, Joseph acted with all the dispatch that time-consuming responsibilities and frustrating difficulties would allow, unquote. That's a good quote. It pretty much puts together a lot of the things we just talked about individually. There's a few other responses to this, which uh, some of which are very good. We all know that uh, Paul had a very impressive vision when he was on his way to Damascus, in which he saw the Son of God. And yet, even though he had this incredible experience, the first known recording that the Apostle Paul made of that vision was written down 24 years after he had the vision itself. And that's even more than you can get if you stretch it all the way to the 22-year limit for Joseph Smith. And yet, Christians, people in other religious, uh, Christian churches, have no trouble accepting that from Paul, you see. But they do for Joseph Smith. And the reason why is, of course, that they believe that Paul really saw it, and therefore they can accept that time limit. But since Joseph Smith, they, didn't, they don't believe he saw it, any time limit there is going to be too much, and it's going to cast suspicion on Joseph Smith. <coughs> Another good uh, and interesting comment, which I found in research, is that uh, the Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, the vision, it's called the vision, you know, the three degrees of glory, that was received, recorded, and published in an incredibly short period of time, especially given uh, back in the early 19th century, in five months after that was received, that was published. And therefore, if we follow the critics' logic, they should be more than willing to accept this is true. Because it was written and it was recorded and it was published immediately. But of course they don't. Which just goes to show that really they're talking out of the side of their mouth when it comes to uh, the length of time between Joseph Smith uh, receiving the first vision and writing it down. Let me also share something else with you. And that's something that I don't think is recognized very much in the church today. And it deals with the importance of the first vision. The importance of the first vision to us today, in the 20th century, is completely 
completely different than it was to the early saints in the 19th century. To us, we've got this whole movie about it, you know, and we watch it and we show it, and, and uh, we have it as part of the first discussion, right? As we consider it the most the foundation event in the church. But that's not the way the people in the 19th century saw it. It was not important at all to them, as far as the church went. It simply was not. And that is one reason why it wasn't talked about very much, because it wasn't important to the church. And as a matter of fact, let me tell you quite frankly, the first vision is not important to the church. It simply is not important to the historical organization of the church. And you can tell that by one fact about the first vision alone. There's one fact about the first vision that tells you immediately it's not important to the church. What is that? Larry? Joseph was the only witness. Exactly. Man, you're good. I can see Brittany that one too. That's exactly right. There was only one witness. Anything that's important to the foundation of the church, you can be darn good and sure God saw to it there was going to be at least two witnesses. If we look at the Book of Mormon, you got witnesses all over the place. If you look at the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood, you have both Joseph and Oliver, same with the Melchizedek priesthood. If you look at, uh, oh, section 76, I don't know if that's necessarily important, but we have Joseph Smith and uh, Sidney Rigdon both seeing that. Look in section 110, where we have this uh, whole parade of individuals from past dispensations coming and restoring. It was really the preface to the restoration, saying something is coming, try to get ready for it. Right. And it was intensely important to one individual, and that was Joseph Smith, because he was told that his sins were forgiven him. And that, you know, if he continued faithful, exactly, a preface, then all things would be restored through him. And that is another reason, you see, that it's not, it wasn't that important back then. Now, this individual here who wrote this book, The Mormon Illusion, it's so funny because in this chapter that he devotes primarily to dealing with the first vision, he often says too much. He, he gives information that's favorable to our side because he doesn't know when to shut up. He talks about the fact that Joseph Smith didn't mention it for a certain amount of time, okay? But then he goes on, and this is where he goes too far. And he says, pages 24 and 25, he talks about the fact that Brigham Young didn't even mention it. In all of his, in all of his discourses, in the Journal of Discourses, he didn't even mention it. Quote, even Brigham Young, who had 363 of his sermons recorded in the Journal of Discourses as an inspired apostle, succeeding Joseph Smith, failed to mention the first vision. Mormon librarian Lawrence G. Peterson, in a letter dated August 31, 1959, wrote, I have checked through the Journal of Discourses, which records many of the sermons of Brigham Young. There is no mention there of anything by Brigham Young on the first vision of Joseph Smith, unquote. Why didn't he just shut up? He doesn't seem to realize that by giving us this information, he's showing us that Brigham Young didn't think it was that important either. Now, if Brigham Young didn't think it was important enough to mention in any of these 363 sermons that are recorded in the Journal of Discourses, why should we think that Joseph Smith thought it was so important to record it 12 years after it happened? This is one of those examples where he went too far, and he gave us information that actually favors our side. This isn't the only time he does it, as a matter of fact. Now, of course, the idea behind this theory, you see, this idea behind this theory of Joseph Smith looking back in time and, and writing down his first vision that occurred in 1820 is that originally Joseph Smith believed in the Trinity. Now, this is a theory, right? Joseph Smith believed in the Trinity like everybody else, and later on he, he came up with this idea that God and Jesus Christ are separate people, and then he wrote this first vision and related it back and stuck it back in time. Okay? Well... <clears throat> I mean, hey, if you want to make theories, you can make theories all the, all day long. It helps to have facts to support them. 
but uh, we're not going to inhibit people from making up theories. Oftentimes, the Book of Mormon, though, is brought forth to say, look, the Book of Mormon even teaches the Trinity. Have you ever heard that? Sure you have, right? Because you got the Book of Mormon all these places saying, well, God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost are one. Well, the Bible says that. We know what it's talking about. I don't imagine that the writers of the Book of Mormon mean anything different than the writers of the Bible. We'll deal with a whole class about the, the nature of deity later on. But the point I want to get at now is that the Book of Mormon teaches in many places, quite unequivocally, that God and Jesus Christ are separate. So does the Bible. And we'll get to that, like I said, later. But let me give you just a few of these references. Second uh, Nephi 31.7. Let's just go ahead and read that one. I'll only read a few of these references. And the rest I'll just uh, list. You can look them up at your own convenience. Second Nephi 31.7, where it says, Know ye not that he, Jesus Christ, was holy, but notwithstanding he being holy, he shows unto the children of men that according to the flesh he humbles himself before the Father, and witnesses unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him, the Father, in keeping his, the Father's, commandments. Very clear here, talking about Jesus Christ and the Father as separate individuals. It does that again in verses 11 and 12 of the same chapter. Uh, Jacob 4, verse 5 is another one. And then we have a whole slew of them, which makes it absolutely clear when Jesus Christ appears to the Nephites. That's when it really becomes clear, because here he is among them and talking about his Father, praying to his Father, talking about ascending to his Father, etc. Let me give you some of those references. 3 Nephi 11, verse 7 and verse 32. 3 Nephi chapter 17, verse 16. Chapter 19, verses 18 through 31, and that's that whole prayer he gives, you know, about three prayers he gives to the Father in that uh, reference. Chapter 20, verse 46, chapter 26, verse 2, and verse 15, and chapter 27, verses 28 through 30. Two other references are found briefly. Moroni chapter 7, verse 27, and chapter 9, verse 26, and both those deal with Christ being at the right hand of God just like Stephen the Apostle saw him right before he was killed. And in fact, that being perhaps the reason why he was killed, because he proclaimed that he saw Christ standing at the right hand of God. So we have many of these references in the Book of Mormon showing that indeed, at least as early as 1830, that doctrine was all over the Book of Mormon. That God the Father and Jesus Christ were separate. So here we have something that even dates it earlier than the earliest recorded vision that we have of 1832. Well, recorded account of the first vision. Well, I think we've beaten that one to death. Other questions come up about it. Uh, the first vision. Often the allegation is made that Joseph Smith's accounts of the first vision contradict each other. And therefore, obviously, he was lying and he got caught up in his lie and he made some statements that contradicted each other when he was uh, talking about the first vision. This is patently false. Yes. That he'd already printed it once in 1832. That he'd be very careful to make sure he said the same things in the other version. That, uh, that argument has a great deal of merit to it that if someone were a charlatan, they would be darn sure that they would stick exactly word for word to a previous account. Um, I think that has a lot of merit to it. Joseph Smith did not stick word for word to it. He did not. Uh, but he did give the same account in different words. Now, let me read to you from this book again, The Mormon Illusion. Uh, page 24, it says this. These versions, referring to these four versions... These versions contain important discrepancies from the original version. Actually, from the official version, so it says. For a detailed and scholarly explanation, get the Tanner's pamphlet, The First Vision Examined. 
This whole part of this chapter is dealing with the first vision, and yet he's not going to give us one reference to a discrepancy that Joseph Smith had in his own vision. He goes on to say on page 29, without giving us any details, Why did Joseph Smith himself give several utterly irreconcilable accounts of the first vision? Unquote. But he fails to tell us what these irreconcilable differences are that he gave in the first vision. So, I think, honestly and truly, if he had any, if this guy had any, I don't know why he's wasting his time telling us all these extraneous things, like that Brigham Young didn't mention, any, didn't mention anything about the first vision, and leaving the first vision that Joseph Smith gave, those four accounts, completely alone. So what I have here is I have four accounts of the first vision. And I want to go through them, one at a time, dealing with what Floyd C. McElveen claims to be the three elements that Joseph Smith completely got confused about time after time. And they were, well, they were his age when he received the first vision, the year when he received the first vision, and the contents of the vision. So those are the three main things that he repeats again and again that Joseph Smith kept getting wrong. Let's first off go to the 1832 recital of the first vision, which was dictated to Frederick G. Williams who was serving as Joseph Smith's scribe at the time. First off, as to Joseph Smith's age, I want to bring up something here that's very interesting concerning the age of Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith seems to have been genuinely unsure as to whether he was 14 years old or 15 years old when he received the first vision. In many of his accounts, uh, you'll see 14 or 15, or around this age. Apparently, he couldn't remember exactly how old he was at that time. Let me give you an example. Think about your own history. Can any of you, I assume that you have birthday parties, can any of you distinguish in your mind, at this point, looking back, your 14th birthday party from your 15th birthday party? I'll tell you, I sure can. If you can, you have an incredible memory, believe me. I can't distinguish hardly any of my birthday parties, unless something incredible happened, and nothing really ever did at my birthday parties. But, uh, <coughs> at least you had parties. Thank you. Yes, I did. <laughs> so if you had one, you would remember it. <laughs> but still, it's hard, because those years just flow together. Those years just flow together, and I don't see anything terribly incriminating about the fact that Joseph Smith, looking back in 1832, couldn't remember if he was 14 or 15 when he had the first vision. At any rate, um... In this 1832 recital of the first vision, uh, concerning his age, this is what he says. He says, uh, calling upon the Lord in the 16th year of my age. Okay? Here it says in the 16th year. It's possible he thought he was 16 at this time. This was written in. However, it also has to be noted that where it says 16 here is written very poorly, and it could actually be a 5. It's hard to tell whether it's a 16 or a 15. And so it could well be a 15th year of his age. Now, if it's a 16th year, note this too, because this is confusing. If it's a 16th year, how old is he? 15. Right. We get that confused. I get that confused. I talk about the 18th century. Of course, that means the 1700s, right? Exactly, and that's the exact same kind of problem. Thank you, I was about to say the 1900s. <laughs> but uh, the 16th year, he would have been 15. But if it's his 15th year, as it could be, it's hard to read here, it would be that he was 14 years old. Okay, so that's his age there. Here's what he says happened. Uh, one second, there's no year mentioned in this first account, okay, so there's no year at all given to, uh, to gripe about. But he says, uh, a pillar of light above the brightness of the sun at noonday came down from above and rested upon me 
and I was filled with the Spirit of God. And the Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord, and he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Okay. Now note here that Joseph Smith says, the Lord appeared unto me. Okay. Well, immediately what critics of the church would like to jump on is say, Joseph Smith said that only one person appeared to him in his 1832 account. And yet that's not what he said. He mentions the Lord appeared to him and told him this. He doesn't say that it was only the Lord. And in fact, from reading this, it's quite possible he was referring to both the Father and the Son because he mentions two lords, if you notice. And Lord at that time could be used easily in the Western Dictionary for the time for the Supreme Being as well for Jesus Christ. I repeat, the Lord and I saw the Lord, and he spake unto me, saying, Joseph, thy sins are forgiven me. So it's quite possible that here he is speaking of both the Father and the Son in veiled language. Do you notice that Joseph Smith never in any of his accounts said, God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, appeared to me? He was always very reverent about what happened. Whether it's for reverence or because he knew what the reaction of people would be if he was explicit about it, I do not know. But even in the official account, what does he say? Does he say, God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, appeared to me? No. He says there were two beings. One addressed me by name, pointing to the other, said, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. You get a hint, but that's it. It's up to the missionaries today to go out and say, God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, appeared to Joseph Smith. So once again, we have this type of, uh, perhaps, veiled language. And even if it's not veiled language, even if he's only talking... Uh, referring to Jesus Christ here, it certainly does not say that he was the only person who appeared to him. Um, also, at the very bottom, let me also uh, quote this at the very end. And there were many things which transpired that cannot be written. So there's a whole lot of things here that he's not telling us, and he makes clear to us that he's not telling us. All right, let's go to the 1835 recital of the first vision. If we go to age, he says, I was about... 14 years old when I received this first communication. So there's the age, 14, and notice the uh, the unsurety there. I was about 14 years old. Um, and no mention of a year again, and yet Lloyd C. McElvey gets so upset about years. Joseph Smith not, hasn't mentioned a year yet to uh, contradict himself. Here's what he says, I called on the Lord in mighty prayer. A pillar of fire appeared above my head, which presently rested down upon me and filled me with unspeakable joy. A personage appeared in the midst of this pillar of flame, which was spread all around, and yet nothing consumed. Another personage soon appeared, like unto the first. He said unto me, Thy sins are forgiven thee. He testified also unto me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So here we have two personages appearing to Joseph Smith. In the 1835 recital of the first vision, interesting point, though, that he brings up, and he brings it up again and again. One appears first, a little bit later, another one comes and joins the first one. That surprised me. I always had this idea that they both came down together, which I guess is the idea you get from the, the film, The First Vision. Boom, they're both there. Another interesting point, there's no way I'm going to get through all this stuff, so I'll just deal with The First Vision today. Fascinating stuff. Uh, you've seen the film The First Vision, and you know that when the bad guy, when Satan starts to come up on you, you hear this crack, and Joseph Smith gets up and looks around, and he's all upset. In the 1835 recital of the first vision is where we have this detail. It says, My tongue seemed to be swollen in my mouth so that I could not utter. I heard a noise behind me like someone walking towards me. 
I strove again to pray, but could not. The noise of walking seemed to draw nearer. I sprang upon my feet and looked around, just like in the movie, but saw no person or thing that was calculated to produce the noise of walking. And then he goes on and talks about the vision. Yes, Larry. I think it's interesting that they, they pay that much uh, attention to detail for the movie that they examined the 1835 account as well, but then why did they have them come down and say that? I do not know. I don't know. I think it's probably, if you want my opinion, because here you're sitting here with something as amorphous as a, an attack by Satan, and they had to come up with something for it, and they wanted to have something concrete that could go on film and audio, and so they looked here and found something they could use. That would be my guess. Yes, and you could certainly... You could certainly take... Yeah. And it's easy to take care of Satan coming, you just have to snap a trip twig. So, um, but anyway... 1838 recital of the first vision. I hope I don't have to tell you about this too much. This is the one that has been canonized as the official version, not the 1842 version. Uh, first off, age, I was at this time in my 15th year. He says, I was 14 years old. He, get, he does give a year here. This is the first time he gives a year, 1820. And I'm sure that any missionary here who's old enough to have had to have memorized this before he went on his mission is quite aware of the, the details. Yes. 1820. It was on the morning of a beautiful clear day early in the spring of 1820. So there's the first date that we have, which does match up with Joseph Smith's birth and his being 14 in 1820 and everything. And the vision, of course, talks about two personages coming down. One, one of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, this is my beloved son, hear him. So, so far yet, I am unable to come to any contradictions, even though the Mormon illusion tells us that there are reconcilable contradictions in the first vision. Now we'll go to the last one. The age. When about 14 years of age, I began to reflect upon the importance of being prepared for a future state, etc. Once again, 14 years now. Not in my 14th year, but 14 years of age. And about is there again. Once again, it seems a little... The vision. Once again, no year is mentioned. No year is mentioned in this one. So let me bring this to your attention. There is only one of these versions that has a year mentioned of 1820. And yet, Floyd C. McElveen, without quoting from any of these visions, is very quick to assure us that that's one of the points on which there is so much contradiction. The year. Vision. I retired to a secret place in a grove and began to call upon the Lord. While fervently engaged in supplication, my mind was taken away from the objects with which I was surrounded. And I was enwrapped in a heavenly vision and saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness. And that's where we get that detail. They exactly resemble each other from the Wentworth letter. Surrounded with a brilliant light which eclipsed the sun at noonday. Once again, we have two beings appearing to Joseph Smith. Um, we have a few other accounts here which I'm not going to bore you with, though you can certainly look at them later. One by Orson Pratt, which was published in 1840. Another by Orson Hyde, published in 1841, which say substantially the same thing concerning... Uh, actually, they, they quote each other concerning the first vision that there were two beings appearing to Joseph Smith. Another thing that's funny that they both quote is concerning Joseph Smith's age. Here's what they say. When somewhere about 14 or 15 years old. So once again, in their writings, the reflections of Joseph Smith's insurance about his precise age is reflected. Let me finally sum up this part about all these contradictions by saying that there are no contradictions. There aren't any. And yet it's very easy if you're writing a Mormon book to say, there are contradictions, there are contradictions, there are contradictions. But if you say that, you better not quote it, because if you do, you're not going to have any contradictions. Unless, of course, you use the famous dot, dot, dot method, which Floyd Z. McElveen is so adept at. And I'm sure he can make many contradictions if he uses that method. 
We've already seen him do that. The final question that comes up about Joseph Smith's vision, at least as far as the Mormon illusion is concerned, this book, is why did Joseph Smith's contemporaries, people in the church, come up with different accounts of the first vision? Okay? In the first instance, I am not convinced that that is at all important. I don't see why Joseph Smith should be held responsible for other people giving somewhat varied accounts of his first vision. And yet, this is exactly what this book lays all of its evidence on. That's what it puts, that's what it quotes from, all these different other accounts of Joseph Smith's contemporaries. It doesn't touch Joseph Smith's own accounts, which we have seen do not contradict each other. Um, let me read to you from page 27. Um, but before I do that, this is the other case in this one chapter where Mr. McElveen goes too far and gives us too much information. The first thing that he says is that Joseph Smith's contemporaries gave different accounts, and he gives a few of uh, a few of those which are interlaced with dot 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 in very suspicious points, I might add. And I would have looked them up, except he quotes from Messenger and Advocate and Millennial Star, and I tried to find some copies, but you know I couldn't because it's back from 1830s and 1840s, and I couldn't find any. However, I will say that those dot dot dots are in very suspicious circumstances, and I wouldn't put it past him. But then he goes on; he goes too far. Then he starts quoting from people who are members of the church who lived after the official version was published. And they give varied accounts of the first vision. He went too far. He should have shut up. But if people after the official account is given give somewhat varied uh, accounts of the first vision, then why should we be any more surprised to hear about people before it was published giving somewhat varied accounts of the first vision? Well, didn't he just say that no one knew about it before it was published when it was made up? Good point. Good point. He contradicts himself back and forth. And you're going to see some incredible contradictions and confusing things to us in, in the next, 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 next quote. I'm sorry, yes. Well, if none of those people saw it, what difference does it make? What they think? That's what I say. I mean, like, if Oliver North uses his defense that the people in this room would give different accounts of what he's supposed to have done, then so he couldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. That does, yeah, that'd be a pretty weak defense, don't you think? <laughs> we'll see if they do that. But anyway, let me quote to you here, okay? It says, furthermore, in the Deseret News, May 29, 1852, this is from page 27, The Mormon Illusion, Joseph Smith was quoted as having said, I received the first visitation of angels, which was when I was about 14 years old. I want to deal with this first. We say, wait a second now, Joseph Smith, the angel Moroni, that was when he was 17. When he was 14, it was the father and the son. So something's wrong here, okay? Let me quote to you from the 1835 account. From the 1835 recital of the first vision, Joseph Smith says this, I saw many angels in this vision. Another little known detail about the first vision, that it wasn't just the father and the son, and yet Floyd here would like to nail Joseph Smith to the wall for referring later to the fact that he did see angels in it, when he mentioned that in his 1835 account. So this is another red herring. And here he goes. Now listen, this points out another discrepancy from many Mormon sources. The early accounts of the vision list an angel appearing to Joseph Smith, not the father and the widows. And yet when he quotes them, he's quoting from the Journal of Discourses. He is quoting from discourses that were given in the latter half of the 19th century. And yet these are what he calls the early accounts of the vision. 
And later on, he refers to these accounts as having been given before the official account was given. Either he's very confused. I don't think he is. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. Here's what he says. Apostle Orson Pratt stated, quote, By and by, an obscure individual, a young man, rose up and, in the midst of all Christendom, proclaimed the startling news that God had sent an angel to him. Dot, dot, dot. This occurred before this young man was 15 years of age. And he says, this is obviously referring to Smith's first vision. Well, it is. And if you recall, the very first time we met, if you were here, I went ahead and read you from the Journal of Discourses that this quotes from, except I filled in a dot, dot, dot form, in that it says that two beings, the Father and the Son, appeared to Joseph Smith. That's what he omitted from that dot, dot, dot in order to try and fool you. He goes on to say, John Taylor, the third president of the Mormon Church, stated, how did this thing, the state of things called Mormonism, originate? We read that an angel came down and revealed himself to Joseph Smith and manifested unto him in vision the true position of the world in a religious point of view. So, John Taylor did say that, and he referred to Jesus Christ, or the Father, or both, as an angel. Now, isn't that strange? Let me tell you right now, it's strange to us, but it wasn't strange back then, because they were synonymous. And I'll read you uh, presently. Uh, some uh, references to that fact, that they could use angel for uh, Jesus Christ or the Supreme Being. It says, now this is going on, he's uh, continuing, he says, in spite of this irrefutable evidence from Mormon apostles themselves, I know he just quoted from the Journal of Discourses, and we know when those were given, right? But listen to what he says. In spite of this irrefutable evidence from Mormon apostles themselves, the story of the first vision grew and was changed until today's version, that Joseph Smith saw the Father and the Son. And yet, of course, that version was given in 1838, the official version, and these discourses he's just quoting from were given long after that. So once again, he's confusing the issue. Let me go to um, some material of interest, I believe, about later apostles giving somewhat different versions, at least to our ears, of Joseph Smith's first vision. And to me, it doesn't make any difference what they said, because it's what Joseph Smith said that's important. And yet they did give somewhat interesting variations. And I think it's interesting to understand why they did that. Although contemporaries of Joseph Smith identified the two personages who appeared to him in 1820 as the father and son, sometimes these same individuals said that an angel told Joseph not to join any of the churches. And that's an example of John Taylor saying that an angel had said that. While speaking on the subject of the first vision, John Taylor said in 1879 that an angel told Joseph that none of the churches were right. And these have references to the general discourses, if you want them later. Uh, referring to the same vision less than one year later, President Taylor, the same person, said, quote, The Lord appeared unto Joseph Smith both the Father and the Son. Isn't that interesting? Maybe that ties into what Joseph Smith meant when he said in his first account that the Lord appeared to me. <laughs> it could mean the Father and the Son to these individuals because that was how the 1864 George A. Smith quoted Joseph Smith's 1838 history, the official account, that identified the Father and Son, and he summarized the vision by saying that God had revealed truth to his servant Joseph. Interesting. The same leader, George A. Smith, in the late 1860s, so this is later on after that, reported that, quote, the Lord answered his prayer and revealed to Joseph by the ministration of angels 
the true condition of the religious world, unquote. He added that, quote, an holy angel, unquote, told Joseph Smith that all the churches had gone astray. And President Brigham Young said on one occasion that the Lord sent his angel, a messenger, to Joseph in 1820, and a few years later said that the Lord called upon Joseph Smith when he was 14 years of age. So here at Brigham Young, an angel did it, and the Lord, and the Lord did it. He said that Lord did it at a later time. Joseph Smith and many other early leaders of the church used the term Lord to identify the Father and Son, and used the words Lord, Christ, Personage, Messenger, and Angel interchangeably. The prophet taught others that the resurrected Christ was an angel. One kind of being in heaven, he said, is an angel, or a personage who was resurrected with a body of flesh and bones. A similar pattern of expression is found in the Old Testament, where God and angel are used interchangeably. For example, in Genesis 48, 15, 16. Now we go to, uh, it talks about the dictionary definitions. While discussing the Restoration, 19th century Latter-day Saints generally used the language of their age, which only makes sense. We use the language of our age. Angel was defined in the 1828 and 1844 editions of the Webster's Dictionary as a, quote, messenger, one employed to communicate news or information from one person. Two other definitions for the word angel were, quote, Christ, the mediator and head of the church, and Lord. In the same dictionary, Lord was not only defined as supreme being, but as Christ, the latter being identified as a New Testament usage. So, we see from the Journal of Discourses and all these apostles and leaders in the church who talked about the first vision in varying terms, that they use different terms synonymously. And therefore, we might well expect to find those same terms being used synonymously by people before the official account was given, which would, of course, explain why there were different uh, variations, what appeared to our mind anyway, to be variations on the first vision given by people other than Joseph Smith. As I said, I don't think that that's terribly important what other people said who didn't have that vision to mention. And yet, I think this helps us to understand, maybe, why that was, and give us more understanding into church history. That takes care of those three elements of the first vision, which is so often uh, criticized by people who are not members of the church. I hope we've seen today, if nothing else, the most important part, I think, is that none of Joseph Smith's accounts of the first vision contradict each other. They simply do not. Some give details that others don't, like the 1835 version is the only one to mention, mention that he saw many angels in that vision. And uh, some other accounts mention things that aren't mentioned in any of the other three. And yet, they do not contradict each other. One uh, response that is often effective in this case to demonstrate this to a person's Bible is to ask him simply, how many angels, or her, I don't mean to be sexist, how many angels were at Christ's tomb on the morning of the resurrection? Can anyone answer that for me in one word? In one word? How many? Come on. Be honest. We can't answer it with one word, right? Because there's two different accounts. One says that there was one angel, and one says that there was two angels. All right. So, Obviously, then, you say, well, these are contradictory. You say, no, no, they're not contradictory. One just mentions that there were two, and the other one didn't, the one that says that there was one, didn't mention that there was another one. Well, of course that's right. 
They're not contradictory. The one that says that there's one doesn't say that there's only one angel there and there's nobody else around. It just says there was this angel that talked to them and told them, come see the place where Christ lay. He is risen even as he said. And of course, that's what happened. And yet when it comes to the Bible talking, they're very eager to give that explanation. And yet when it comes to Joseph Smith talking, they're not going to give him the same break. This is called a double standard of interpretation technique. The Bible does it, it's okay. Same thing applies to Paul's waiting 24 years to get his first account of the vision. If they do it, it's okay. If Joseph Smith does it, he's a false prophet. And if a person's sincere, and believe it or not, there are many sincere people in the world, sometimes I get a little bit cynical, but there really are, then bringing that to their attention can help them understand and open their eyes to, oh yeah, well, I guess, yeah, you're right, in the same way, there really aren't any contradictions in Joseph Smith's story. It's just some things are in one that aren't in the other. It gives more information on certain aspects than in the other. Are there any questions? We're going to have to close it here. Believe it or not, I, expect, I had expected to get to twice as much material. I can prepare than under prepare. You might disagree with me, but... <laughs> any questions? Any comments? Okay. Well, I would like to have a closing prayer. Would anyone like to volunteer for that? Oh, wait a second. Okay, we got a little bit of time here. I know you're supposed to get out about now, but we started five minutes late. I have this wonderful quote that I want to read to you about Joseph Smith to close this. Okay, This is from a book called An American Prophet, and it was written in the 1930s. And it was written by a man who was not a member of the church, and yet found Joseph Smith fascinating. And the first half of the book, it's over here in the PCL. Have any of you ever heard of it? I would encourage you to get it. It is a book written from an impartial point of view, one that is not... Uh, saying Joseph Smith is a prophet, but it's one that's not written from an, uh, the other point of view, saying Joseph Smith was a charlatan, a fraud, and yan, yan, yan. In summarizing some of the things about Joseph Smith and his accomplishments in life, he goes ahead, he lists a lot of those accomplishments, and we know what he's talking about, you know, uh, founder of religious organization, uh, president of university, lieutenant general, Nauvoo Legion, all these different things, architect, etc., and uh, then he goes on to compare Joseph Smith to some of the great figures in history. And it's fascinating. I've never thought of this before. Referring to his achievements, this is what he says. That, however, his achievements, is not the whole story by any means. This is from page 413 and 414. These achievements were won under three serious handicaps. Number one, Joseph Smith had no education to speak of in the sense of schooling. He could read and write and do sums in arithmetic, all very inadequately. Moreover, this is number two, excuse me, moreover, he did his work in the face of constant, often violent opposition from those who did not believe as he did. The character of that opposition the reader is already familiar with, because he addressed it in the early part of the book, and you are, as members of the church, very familiar with it, I'm sure. And three, he did not have the advantage of years in which to complete his work in life. He died before he was 39. If anyone wishes to evaluate the qualities of a Mormon prophet, let him look at the men whom he knows and then at the men in history. This is what he's going to do. First off, he's going to have you look at the people you know, and then he's going to compare them to people in history. First, let one pick out the men under 40 in one's own circle of acquaintances. It would be more to the point if only those were chosen who had not been to college or even to high school and who had no particular vocation but worked on a mortgage farm. If, however, this class of persons does not yield the results desired, 
Let the circuits under 40 who have had all the advantages of education and a cultured environment. What have these men done? How do their achievements compare with those of Joseph Smith? While no one can look into the future, yet it is illuminating to inquire how many of them and which of them will be increasingly famous 89 years after their death. This book was published 89 years after Joseph's death. So now we can say almost 150 years after Joseph Smith's death, how many of them will become increasingly famous? The study of historical characters will prove equally enlightening. If Washington, if Washington had died at the age of 39, he would today be unknown outside Virginia, and there only as a man of quiet dignity, the owner of a plantation. Had Lincoln not lived beyond that age, there would not now be a statue of him by St. Gaudens in one of the Chicago parks, and he would be known only locally as a circuit-riding lawyer full of apt stories. And if Mary Baker Eddy had passed away at 39, her grave would now be covered with grass and weeds and her headboard long since eaten of worms. What had Andrew Jackson, Grover Cleveland, Theodore Roosevelt, or Woodrow Wilson to their credit when they reached 39, or Webster, Clay, or Calhoun? And so we might go on. It is a rare thing indeed to find anyone under 40 who has done anything worth social remembrance, except perhaps in the arts like poetry and music where development comes early. Remote history teaches us the same story. Note now, as he compares Joseph Smith to the most prominent religious leaders in history. Moses was long past 40 when he beheld the burning bush and received a message there. Although... Although Buddha was 30 years old when he took up the life of contemplation, yet he must have been at least 37 when the light came under the tree, and his teachings had yet to be developed into a system. St. Augustine was 32 when he was baptized into the Christian church, and 41 when he was made bishop of Hippo. It was not till he was about 40 that Mohammed, that Mohammed began to receive intimations of his mission. Martin Luther was 37 when the Pope issued a bull excommunicating him. The turning point in John Wesley's life did not come till he was 35, with his great work all before him. This lateness of arrival by religious and political leaders is due largely to the fact that in their field thought and experience are necessary, and these come only with years, except in rare cases. The Mormon prophet's case is apparently an exception. So more than ever, just how is all this to be explained? Meantime, the religion of Joseph Smith goes quietly on its way, exactly as if there were no problems at all in connection with it. This is from a man with no axe to grind, a man who's not a member of the church, quite frankly and honestly comparing Joseph Smith with the most prominent religious leaders and political in history. With Moses, the founder of the Jewish faith, Gautama, the founder of the Buddhist faith, Muhammad, the founder of the Muslim faith, and others who were great reformers. And Joseph Smith did all this before he was 39. I find that a fascinating quote from a fascinating book. He has many other uh, insights into Joseph Smith that I had never heard before and helped me appreciate him more and more. One other thing that he does, he quotes from Doctrine and Covenants section 121. I hope we're all familiar with talk, with a passage about the priesthood there in the end and uh, how much that's quoted in the church. I've become somewhat uh, jaded to it because it's quoted so much. If he quotes it, 
in his book, and he says, look at that. Joseph Smith claimed that as scripture. You compare that with anything in the Bible, and in my opinion, it's better. You can, you can compare that with the best thing that Isaiah ever wrote, and this compares favorably with that. And that really helped my appreciation because it's true. It's 100% true. I want you to know that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. I know you know that. What I mean is I want you to know that I know it, and I have a strong testimony of that. And I'm grateful for this chance to talk about the first vision so that our testimonies can be uh, strengthened from it. We can learn more about it and hopefully be able to represent the first vision to any people with uh, genuine, sincere, and honest questions. Jesus Christ, amen. So that concludes Lecture 4 of Radio Free Mormon, Defender of the Faith. I hope you're enjoying this stroll down memory lane as much as I am. If you feel moved upon to make a contribution to Radio Free Mormon, I'd like you to do that right now. Just go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage and make a contribution today. I'm encouraging all listeners to this program to make a $10 continuing contribution, $10 a month, toward Radio Free Mormon. Your contribution will help ensure that Radio Free Mormon continues to spread its message behind enemy lines. Of course, that $10 a month is merely a suggestion. Feel free to go over and above that $10 a month if you feel moved upon by the Holy Ghost. Some listeners to this program have commented that they simply do not have any money that they can possibly spare to contribute to the program. If that is your case, please do not feel pressured by me. Instead, I would encourage you to share this program with as many of your friends and family as possible. Radio Free Mormon Mania starts here. Won't you help? Not only with well-deserved critiques and reviews of church teachings, leadership, and policies, but also with programs such as this, which helps answer commonly heard criticisms of the LDS Church and makes a way for members to remain faithful, if that is their desire. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.